Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports professor Rick Haro inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. Focusing on the return of hockey and basketball, the President's Cup signaling the end effectively of the golf season, the beginning of the next NASCAR playoffs, NFL heating up, baseball heating up, and European sports going to the next level clearly as we move into the fall. So let's focus on deal-making issues as we normally do, three to one. Three. There's no launch date revealed during the Massachusetts online betting roundtable. The Gaming Commission held a meeting this morning, this last week, with a number of heavy hitters in the online sports betting industry, gathering opinions on whether or not Massachusetts should institute a staggered online sports betting launch date, temporary licenses should be awarded at an uncapped rate, despite expectations no potential online sports betting launch dates discussed at the meeting based off of feedback from operators and remarks from the commissioners it's becoming increasingly likely that massachusetts online sports betting not launched in 2022 more than 30 sports betting operators submitted notices of intent to the state they plan to apply for an online sports betting license 15 permanent licenses available two each for state casinos mgm springfield Encore Boston Harbor, Plain Ridge Park Casino, one each for Suffolk Downs, and Raynham Park. The remaining seven online licenses will be untethered and awarded to qualified applicants by the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. Two. Mark Cuban leads pre-seed funding round for basketball player performance analytics startup Cerebro Sports. The basketball player performance analytics startup signed agreements with multiple college and NBA teams, Cerebro created proprietary metrics to evaluate players in its global player database based on box score stats collected from games and recruiting showcases. The dashboard includes player data from high school, college, NBA, and overseas competition. Product is aimed to be used for recruiting and scouting purposes and includes a feature where coaches can specify their search to allow players based on roles they need to fill top high school basketball programs to have partnered with them includes the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame Hoop Hall Series, the Grind Session, Les Swab Invitational, Sunshine Independent Athletic Association, and others. Excited to see how far the company can go, says Mark Cuban. One. CBS and the 60 Minutes show returns with a bang, but football gives NBC the weekly ratings win. Uh, Last week, the first Week of the new season, 10.1 million viewers for Joe Biden, along with the Iranian president, can't get better than that. But two NFL games, plus two pregame shows, plus live same-day figures released by Nielsen, showed fifth among primetime programs airing uh, behind these games, 60 minutes. Clearly a big deal, but... 60 Minutes can't beat football in many cases. 
CBS's afternoon NFL coverage in the eastern and central time zones, uh, a bulk of the specific deals, the 20-17 to 17 victory over the Cincinnati Bengals for the second week, viewership for 60 minutes up 21.3%, <laughs> but in many circles, not good enough. Let's talk about football because it clearly dominates the landscape before we get into Callie Kazires and my weekly top three look to look to look for from a business perspective from the NFL and from college. Before we start that, let's take a look at where we're going in this industry, by the way, with the Tech Minute. Pittsburgh Steelers to use Matt Singh's lens antenna technology inside AccraSure Stadium to support fans' mobile devices. Remember, used to be Heinz Field, mobile game day experience for fans using the venue's Verizon 5G technology. Company has previously integrated its lens antennas at venues for Cowboys and the Raiders, as well as venues of the past five Super Bowls. The Lightning for the Stanley Cup Finals, Miami's Hard Rock Stadium, the Grand Prix Formula One in there. The company's lightweight lens antennas are superior to traditional antennas. Capability of powering the stadium's broadband C-band coverage, emitting and maintaining multiple beams, and carrying it out with limited radio frequency interference, it is a big deal. About the sports gambling minute. Sports betting is swept across the country. Internet casino games have grown much more slowly. Sports betting swept around states the casinos and consumers eagerly, uh, e- eagerly embracing a new gambling market, the Internet casino games growing slowly, but it still has tremendous potential. Speaking for the first time about this issue exclusively, the East Coast Gaming Congress, executives of online betting provided a ready-made infrastructure and regulatory apparatus for online casino games. The commercial director of North American Operations for Evolution said the growth in this industry, still in its infancy stages in the U.S., already have regulators in place, servers in place. It's quicker to start up a casino edition. We'll see where that goes. And that's your sports gaming minute. We'll also talk about racing this week, which is a big deal, with the guy who probably knows more about it from his diverse perspective than anybody else, Brian Sperber. But first, let's get to Callie Kazire and my three games to watch from the lens of the sports business. First, college football for week five. Number 10, North Carolina State. At number five, Clemson. Used to be known as the Textile Bowl. Two top 10 teams, ESPN College Game Day, in Clemson for the eighth time in program history for the highly anticipated matchup. DJ Alungale, Alungale, I can't pronounce, but it doesn't really matter. He's got NIL deals with companies such as Bojangles, Dr. Pepper, Candy Digital, and an NIL collective agreement with Tiger Impact. Dr. Pepper's Fansville uh, advertisements can be seen while watching college football. He estimated to have 546K in NIL valuation and is in the NIL top 100, according to the On3 database. And meanwhile, NC State continues to drive their value up as a brand as a destination for recruits with NIL an infinite possibility in the Raleigh area. Next, 
Number seven, Kentucky, and number 14, Ole Miss. Seventh-ranked Kentucky goes to Oxford, and Lane Kiffin, one of the most well-known coaches in college football, earning an estimated $7.25 million a year to coach Ole Miss and is now off to a 4-0 start. Not a shame to say that NAL is now the number one thing driving recruiting now, the number one thing. Remember how far it's come. Mississippi's first legitimate challenge, taking on SEC rival Kentucky, historically known for their basketball program. Kentucky's football team transformed into a top 10 team in the country, undefeated so far. And Kentucky announcing that from July 1, 2021, the date NIL legislation went into effect, though through June 30, 2022, 176 Kentucky student athletes earned 1300 and 29 NIL deals. Again, huge. Number 22, Wake Forest, and number 23, Florida State. A buzz in Tallahassee. Seminoles might finally be back. The game starting the season 4-0 and entering the AP Top 25 for the first time since 2018, beating Boston College 44-17. The NIL collective Rising Spear announcing an agreement with Market Price, enabling athletes to connect directly with athletes at Florida State through an easy-to-access app. Wake Forest losing in double overtime to Clemson. Sam Hartman, the quarterback, looked phenomenal this season. NIL valuation has followed, being valued at 847000 ranking him number 30 on on three's college football NIL valuation. Bottom line is, whoever wins this game, a increase in project in trajectory in NIL value and obviously therefore recruiting. Callie and I then shift to the pros. The Rams and Niners on Monday Night Football, the reigning Super Bowl champs, take a short trip north to Levi Stadium to take on division rival 49ers, and according to Forbes, the Rams valued at $6.2 billion, the Niners at $5.2 billion, over 25% increases in value since 2020. 49ers' Jimmy Garoppolo had one of the most interesting off-seasons we've seen in recent years, and after both San Francisco and Garoppolo mutually agreed to facilitate a trade to make way for the number 3 overall pick, Trey Lance, they failed to make a deal, and the Niners are forever happy. The backup QB in the league for a brief period, albeit a game and a half, the highest paid backup, the Niners quarterback looks to solidify himself again at the clear best position for the franchise moving forward, and that path continues with a primetime matchup against the Rams. Broncos and Raiders. They travel, Broncos, to Allegiant Stadium to take on their bitter Raiders in an AFC West showdown. By the way, AFC West teams lost all four games the week before. Allegiant Stadium opened in 2020 as the new home of the relocated Raiders in Nevada and hosting the Super Bowl in 2024. The $1.9 billion construction cost. Allegiant Stadium, the second most expensive stadium in the world, along with the brand new stadium. The Raiders are in the gambling capital of the world, of course, which can prove to be lucrative for the players as well. Star receiver Devontae Adams, recently traded from Green Bay, signed a deal with Vegas gaming giant MGM Resorts to become the first active NFL player to do so, and will be considered a brand ambassador. MGM Resorts, also a founding member of Allegiant Stadium, 
official gaming partner of the Raiders. Las Vegas looks to right the ship against Denver after a rocky start 0-3 under new head coach Josh McDaniels. And finally, Chiefs at Buccaneers, rematch of a previous Super Bowl. They travel to Tampa Bay, the Chiefs do, to take on a familiar foe in Tom Brady. These two teams faced off in the Super Bowl in 2021. The lowest-rated Super Bowl since 2007, but CBS still managed to rake in a record-worthy $545 million in ad revenue. Despite the linear viewership rating record lows, especially due to the pandemic, of course, led to the lack of viewership numbers from restaurants and bars. Super Bowl was actually the most streamed Super Bowl ever at the time, with only the most recent Super Bowl beating it out. Shows a growing trend in streaming, taking over every aspect of entertainment, including live sports, dominated by traditional cable television until recently. Sunday night football matchup due to bring in both streaming numbers, just like the Super Bowl matchup, and regular numbers, Pat Mahomes and Tom Brady. We'd obviously like to thank Kali Kazire for his insight and look forward to more of this every week. Well, how about our interview that deals with NASCAR and all its environs? Brian Sperber held key executive positions with International Speedway Corp, served as president of Watkins Glen International in New York, and chairman of Auto Speedway in L.A., president of ISM Raceway, Phoenix Raceway, from 2002 to 2018, serves on the executive boards of the Fiesta Bowl, YPO Gold Arizona, president of the West Coast Stock Car Hall of Fame, a new position teaming with Michael Waltrip to focus on his brewery and an entree into retail sports. Tremendous interview focusing on the history of NASCAR, its playoffs, his perspective, and now what it means to be a retail executive, especially with a huge name behind him. Here's Brian Sperber. Talk a little bit about your early days, early, early days in racing and kind of what got you to where you were. Yeah, so my dad was involved in racing. So as a kid, you know, I was exposed to it. Um, he uh, drag raced. Uh, we had a family business that uh, built racing engines and race cars for um, sports car racing, drag racing and NASCAR. And so at an early age, I was exposed uh, to racing. And I thought, you know, as a kid growing up, like, you know, a lot of kids that are, you know, wanting to kind of get out of town and see the world. Yeah. I thought, gosh, if I could ever get away from this racing thing, you know, it would be it'd be great. And went off to college for a couple of years and really missed it and uh, came back to Daytona, which is where my family's from. And basically pestered the people at the Speedway until they had an option of continuing to put up with uh, my constant calling and bugging them or they could just give me a job and shut me up. And so that's kind of how it all started way back in the old days. And uh, it was great experience, uh, you know, working at Daytona. And, uh, and, and believe it or not, Richard Petty uh, was an active driver back in those days. So that tells you how far back I got. Was it uh, was it those uh, wooden cars or did, was it uh, was it the metal that do we? <laughs> it's like the equivalent to leather, you know, leather helmets and wooden and uh, non wooden bats. So obviously, Absolutely. yeah. And we also know how those people, as we put it, respond to constant uh, pestering, especially if you have something important to sell to them. So they bought it, and racing is better for it. By the way, well, thank you. I appreciate it. The joke is that you know it was a chariot racing back then. So uh. <laughs> Ben Hur, uh, yeah, ben, yeah. Michael Waltrip uh, meets Ben Hur at the intersection. That's, right. <laughs> That's an interesting, interesting branding. So, so talk about 
kind of fast forward to um, Watkins Glen and then some of the early days, how did the kind of knowledge base of, of running a track, um, which is so much more than just a physical building, uh, contribute to, you know, where you are today? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's uh, it's funny that as a kid, I guess I didn't really appreciate the opportunity that I had in terms of growing up around you know, motor racing. And my dad would take me to other events that you know he wasn't competing in. So we were we were constantly at uh, Daytona International Speedway for sports car racing and you know, motorcycles and of course stock car racing and, and drag racing for you know for what he was doing. And fast forward to, I got the opportunity to be president at uh, Watkins Glen, which, you know, in my opinion is, you know, one of the most historically significant tracks that you know, we have in the U.S. And I can't tell you how often I you know, drew on, you know, that background that I had, especially on the sports car side, because uh, the Glen has such a storied history there. And, um, you know, to have those memories as a kid, of uh, some of those great sports car teams back in the, you know, the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it really helped me. But uh, I think, you know, Rick, you're right. I mean, it's um, you know, when you run a, a motorsports venue, venue, it's not just operational. Uh, it really is its own brand. And so you you are you're representing that brand in the, the marketplace, in the community uh, and the operational piece of it doesn't go away either. So, you know, all those things are really on the plate. Uh, you know, every track president. And so it's, uh, it is a, you know, it's a challenge in those, you know, those, those early days. I don't know if you remember the uh, probably again, dating myself, but if you remember the old video game asteroids where you had all these rocks coming at you and you had to shoot them, that, that describes my first year as being a track president. I felt like I was living in asteroids with just issue after issue coming at me. Is, was that before or after Pong? Uh, it was after Pong. I got I it. I think it was after Pong, yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, I remember it. I'm trying to analogize for people that don't know the internal workings of, of NASCAR and International Speedway. Uh, it's a, I think the track president is more equivalent to a, to a team, uh, to an NFL or Major League Baseball team owner than anything else. You, you've got your market. You've got control. You basically have the franchise. Uh, you, you cause the, the profit or loss by a lot of things you do, the tickets, the revenue, the television deals are primarily centralized, but they also have an impact locally. But I also think more important than anything in the difference is that when you did uh, Watkins Glen, upstate New York, then you did LA for a while, and then Phoenix, there were three incredibly different markets. Uh, you know, kind of compare and contrast uh, your, your day jobs in those markets. Yeah. So, you know, I was at the Glen for five years, uh, which, you know, is a, you know, is a small market while the track has, you know, a big profile and, and especially internationally. Um, and as you know, I said, historically significant, the, the community there is relatively small. And uh, from there, I actually went to Phoenix um, in 02. And so that was a, you know, a huge shock to the system going from, you know, a tiny little market where it's like cheers everybody knows your name uh to you know one of the top i guess at the time i think it was the you know 14th uh largest media market um and you had every you know professional sport that you could imagine all competing for you know the share of attention uh, in phoenix whether it's you know the big the big four uh plus you know, you know arguably you know one of the most significant you know golf events in town you had you know barrett jackson you had just all sorts of entertainment options and, you know, NASCAR was, you know, went from being in, in, in Watkins Glen, the, you know, the biggest show in town 
to being, you know, just one of a list of um, large events or, or sports properties that were operating in that marketplace. And so, you know, for me, those early days were really about establishing, you know, NASCAR as an important sport in Phoenix. Uh, up until that point, I think the community really looked at uh, racing and NASCAR in particular as just something nice that came to town once a year back then and uh, brought some money into town, but the community didn't really embrace it. And so I thought that was a heck of an opportunity for us to you know, really try to weave NASCAR into, you know, into the fabric of the, of the Phoenix lifestyle. And I think we made some progress with that and I'm really proud of, you know, when I ended up leaving, you know, Phoenix Raceway was really viewed as an asset to Phoenix. And that was not really the case when we, when we got there so many years earlier. It took a lot of hard work and eight steps up and seven steps back. And I know you well, and I know how you did it. And some of the things that you were involved in, obviously the YPO Gold Arizona, West Coast Stock Car Hall of Fame, but also the executive board of the Fiesta Bowl, good examples of working and reaching out to other sports, whether or not they reached out and worked with you. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, and, and, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, in some corners of, of sports, you know, they view the other sports properties as um, competitors and, you know, fierce competitors in some cases. Um, and, and, you know, I never really had that point of view. I always thought that there was plenty to go around. And if I could partner with another sports property, be it the Phoenix Suns or the you know, the Coyotes or the Diamondbacks um, and, you know, be able to to bring you know, the excitement of NASCAR to their audience that, you know, I might be able to convert some of those fans into, into also, you know, watching or attending NASCAR events as well. And, and, and I offered up the same for the other sports properties. And I just think that, you know, the more the merrier and uh, there's plenty, you know, plenty of, plenty to go around, especially in a market the size of Phoenix. And, uh, and I just think, you know, you catch more flies working, working with, uh, you know, other sports properties than, than trying to be, you know, fierce competitors. And I know you, you, you know, you from time to time, you can actually be very nice. So it, it, <laughs> from time to time, <laughs> from time to time, no, uh, uh, honestly, and, and uh, no, nothing but the greatest respect on your collaborative ability and your, and your, you know, your, uh, your consensus building as well. The thing about NASCAR, and I want you to comment on it as well. And, and the tracks, uh, when, when people look at what it really means to be an asset in a community, they've never spent a lot of time comparing the economics of of a racetrack, let's say, to the economics of a, of a Super Bowl. We've had that discussion a lot. At the end of the day, however, when you look at one race, one race is as economically impactful, if not more, than a Super Bowl, except a race happens once or maybe twice a year. And a Super Bowl, if you're lucky, comes once every seven or eight years. Talk about that. Yeah, look, I had a front row seat for that uh, being in Phoenix while I was there as president of the Phoenix Raceway. I think we had two or three Super Bowls. And so, you know, I got to see that firsthand. And listen, no, no question, you know, Super Bowl is the gold standard. Uh, when that event comes to town, it just it dominates and um, they do an unbelievable job. It's uh, the event by which, you know, all other events are measured and um, and it's, you know, tremendous. Um, but to your point, you know, you don't get the Super Bowl every year as a community. And so, you know, the the uh, flip side of that is, you know, for those communities that do have one or two NASCAR races, it's, you know, the engine that could. Right. It's every year that, uh, you know, those events are coming uh, into that community. They're driving hotel rooms or driving restaurant um, and uh, definitely impacting that community from a direct economic standpoint, because it's a, it's you know importing. 
uh, dollars into that community. But uh, just as importantly, it's putting that community on national television. Yeah. And, and as you know, Rick, you know, typically when NASCAR comes to town, it's not just the NASCAR race. It's the support races that are on national TV as well. And so for, you know, a, a, a community that has an event, you know, you're looking at, you know, with, with other um, broadcasts uh, during the weekend, three, four, five, sometimes six, seven national television broadcasts, all, you know, creating basically a postcard uh, uh, to the nation about, uh, you know, how, how the, what they're missing. And, and, and particularly in Phoenix, when you had those great sunsets and it was yeah. cold in other parts of the world, it's a powerful incentive to get on a plane and come out and bring your golf clubs. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, b- before we talk beer, uh, when you stepped away from, uh, uh, PIR, uh, and you look at it with pride that it becomes a first class destination, the facility, uh, in the, you know, Arizona world, uh, you know, what do you take away from that? And, and as important, uh, where do you think NASCAR is going today? And what's the what are the biggest challenges facing it? Well, as you know, you know, kind of my mic drop moment was the completion of the one hundred and seventy eight million dollar capital uh, rebuild of Phoenix Raceway. It was an incredible experience to to um, have basically a white sheet of paper and you know, reconstruct a racetrack experience. Um, how we wanted to do that. And that's you know for the competitors. It's for our sponsors, our media partners, but most importantly for the fans. And I'm really proud of the final product. Uh, I think it's just an incredibly exciting venue for race fans to take in uh, any form of racing, but uh, in particular NASCAR Cup racing. And so I feel really great that, you know, that I, I left Phoenix Raceway in better shape than, uh, than when we got there. And it, uh, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly something that uh, I'm excited to see fans enjoy for years to come. Um, in terms of where NASCAR is going, um, you know, I really am bullish on the sport right now and where the new leadership is taking the sport. Um, I think, and I, you know, you and I've had this conversation that I believe that the backbone of any motorsports property is really its race schedule. Where do they go for live events? Because that just gins up excitement. And for many, many years, you know, NASCAR, I think, took the position of tradition uh, that was triumphing over, you know, any, any changes. And so they love the idea of just those enduring events year after year the same the same track uh you know you could really you know just name a weekend and immediately you would know where uh the races would be but i think over time it just became it became almost stale for the race fans that um, there were just you know the, the that level of excitement just wasn't there and um I, I give the current management of uh nascar tremendous credit for shaking up the schedule and um and uh, you know, Marcus Smith at SMI you know, being an important part of that, maybe you know, leading a le- leading that in a lot of ways. Um, whether it's you know putting you know dirt down at uh, Bristol to create a uh, you know a dirt race, uh, bringing the Cup Series uh, to Austin, Texas, to to, to Nashville, um, the you know special event that was you know held out at the LA Coliseum, all of those kinds of events, and, and just shaking up the general schedule as well, and going to different places and moving the finale, the championship race to Phoenix, you know, all of those kinds of things uh, injected excitement into the sport, gets fans talking, gets, you know, the competitors talking, and and only good things come from that. And I think you're seeing that with the television ratings starting to be on the, um, on the, on the growth side, uh, a lot more energy in the stands. The ticket sales are reflecting that. And so, you know, kudos to them. They've done a, good, a great job. All right. So I've known you as a, a really good friend, you know, intelligent, entrepreneurial, intense, uh, and a good drinker. So you decide, you know, you move to Bristol 
uh, not Connecticut, Bristol, Tennessee, and you and Michael Waltrip get in business together. Now talk about Michael Waltrip Brewing. Yeah, so, you know, when I was winding up my um, my career at Phoenix Raceway, I had the itch to, you know, to do something entrepreneurial. The, the construction project, I just felt my heart of hearts was going to be kind of the the last thing um, that you know I could could accomplish in in Phoenix, you know, love the market, love the the, the team there, but uh, you know, for me that I pretty much you know felt like I checked all the boxes and it was time to start thinking about my next chapter. And Michael and I had become really great friends, and you know, I saw you know how he connected with with people and not just race fans with you know which you saw at the at the racetrack, but you know he had done ABC's Dancing with the Stars, and you know he's. A terrible dancer he'll tell you that and the judges couldn't wait to vote him off and every time they did america would vote him back on and that only happens if you have this just incredible ability to connect to people in a very human way and um you know he and i had been talking about that and we just thought you know gosh this guy is um, is really a special human being and if i have an opportunity to do something with him you know i would i would love to do that and uh, we were at an event together in of all places, Napa Valley, which of course is you know, course. known for wine. Um, right. And uh, we were sitting in the lobby of uh, the hotel and we just got to talking about uh, our uh, beer and what we loved about beer. And uh, before that conversation was over, we had a handshake to start Michael Walter Brewing. And so uh, when I left uh, NASCAR at the end of 2018, uh, started working immediately with Michael uh, on developing uh, what became Michael Walter Brewing Company. And, um, uh, and now we have a brewery here in uh, in Bristol, Virginia, and Tennessee, um, and uh, you know, complete change of uh, change of direction for me. But it's been it's been great. Seventy five million consumers or more NASCAR based. Obviously, Michael's connection with Fox on a weekly basis. But more important, the idea of tying sports, entertainment facilities into a brand, uh, knowing facilities well. This works all over the country, works especially well in the Southeast, the Nashvilles, the South Floridas, the, the Tampas, the Charlottes, and an ability to joint venture potentially with other entertainment folks and sports folks in town to give people a real sense of a different kind of brand demographically. I assume that's your business plan as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, and you know, you you know, in the case of Michael, uh, and you've seen this in your career, obviously, Rick, and I know your your viewers are, are familiar with a lot of celebrity brands where the celebrity lends their name to the the product or the business, and they're not really that involved. And I think consumers, you know, can see through that fairly quickly. And in this case, you know, Michael is very much involved in the business. He's truly my partner. And, you know, we work on the, the business every every day. And uh, in fact, he's coming here to Bristol tomorrow uh, to be a part of all the things that we're doing for, for race week. And so I think it starts with, you know, having someone like Michael fully engaged. And then, you know, to your point, you know, you've got um, about 9,000 craft breweries uh, around the United States. And with the exception of a handful that are, you know, truly national brands, uh, almost all of them are, you know, pretty local, maybe slightly regional, um, and that and that speaks to you know brand recognition. And if you you have a you know a very popular craft brand in Arizona, for example, you come out here to Tennessee and Virginia, no one's ever heard of them, and and vice versa. And so that's really what you see throughout the landscape of craft beer, and it um, you know creates a, a challenge for those brands to be able to grow. 
in our case, because of, you know, Michael's name just in of itself and all the things that he's done, whether it's dancing with the stars or winning two Daytona 500s, um, you know, people know the Walter name. And, you know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, he's on Fox every week. Uh, he was racing this year uh, in Tony Stewart's SRX series on uh, primetime on CBS Sports. Michael's done a great job of, you know, keeping his name in the public eye. So you know, you've got tremendous brand recognition right away. And it taps into this, this existing audience of NASCAR fans, as you mentioned, the 75 million consumers coast to coast. But, you know, it's more than that. It's, you know, it's retailers that are used to uh, working with brands that are involved in the sport. It's media that's used to covering brands that are involved with the sport. It's other race teams. It's other race series. Uh, we're doing some things now with the NHRA, uh, with IndyCar um, and, and uh, sports car racing. And so we were really growing our connectivity to, uh, to all things motor racing. And we're expanding into country music. Um, and all of that, you know, I think creates a tremendous point of differentiation for our brand. But it starts with, you know, Michael's name recognition and that connection to uh, to NASCAR. And uh, and as you mentioned, you know, we're, we're going, you know, we've started to work with other sports properties as well. And so, you know, I just see, you know, our brand being able to go places that, um, you know, a lot of other craft brands just would be challenged to be able to be relevant. You can tell how passionate uh, my buddy uh, Brian Sperber is about all this, and you can tell that it's a perfect storm as far as developing and implementing this brand. But the business is not easy. It's a retail business that post-pandemic, you're not really sure what the buying habits are, and marketing is great, but it's going to take a special oomph. You are qualified to take uh, the reins. What are the biggest challenges that lie ahead for you? Well, we're a small company. And so, you know, one of the biggest, I would say, you know, benefits slash challenges is that, you know, having a name like Michael Waltrip uh, on our on our front door and on our cans, um, you know, pre presents the appearance that we're a much bigger brand than we are. And that means tons of opportunities are coming our way, opportunities that, you know, a, a, another beer company our size would never get a chance to, to participate in. So that's the good news. The challenge is we are a small company and, you know, we really we, we just celebrated our one year anniversary, uh, you know, a little over a week ago. And so, you know, we've only been around a year. And um, and so, you know, we're getting our sea legs under us. You know, we're producing beer here at the brewery in Bristol, Virginia. We're distributing it into, um, you know, into eight states now. Um, and so you know, we're working with key retailers like Walmart and Food City and Harris Teeter and others. All of that is tremendous for a brand that's only been around a year. But that said, you know, it's it's the resources are very are very small and uh, we are growing. And so, you know, sometimes that's the terminology you can outkick your coverage. And so a lot of times you know, we've got you know, we've got uh, partners and retailers that you know want us to. You know, when can you bring the product to Minnesota? When can you bring the product to, you know, upstate New York? And it's difficult to, to say, hey, we, we're not quite ready to do that yet. I hate saying no to opportunities, but, uh, but that's uh, certainly been one of our challenges is to just try to stay focused on the markets that we're operating in. I know you well enough, and there's nothing about you that's small time, my friend, <laughs> nothing. But I'm looking at final question, kind of. I'm looking at the business plan, and I'm looking at the executive summary, and we're talking about future, a grocery line of food products, uh, a taproom set of partnerships in key uh, markets. You told me a little bit about that as well. So where's the company, and where is Brian Sperber in five years? Yeah, I mean, I see us as a um, national brand with a focus on the Sun Belt 
uh, and that and that would be product on the shelves and in bars and restaurants. Uh, but also, we're extending the brand, um, as you mentioned, into other grocery uh, products, uh, additional tap rooms, which um, you know gives consumers a, an opportunity to, in person to come and interact with the brand. You know, Michael shows up at these tap rooms, so uh, a chance to meet Michael. Um, and um, and we are going to be announcing shortly the you know the launch of our. Uh, music and craft beer festival series that we're going to be doing with other sports properties around the country. And so I think five years from now, we're going to have a portfolio of uh, these kinds of events and a strong footprint of uh, distribution and retail uh, across the uh, the Sun Belt. And so, you know, that's, that's where we're headed and that's where the opportunities lie, I think, for the brand. Do you miss racing? Did you make the right decision? Uh, I think I made the right decision, uh, but I do miss racing. I mean, it's in my blood. I, it's all I, you know, I, I went to my first race when I was 11 weeks old, my mom tells me. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, I've known, you know, motorsports my whole life and still, still watch it on TV, still go to events in person. And I think I'll always keep an eye on, on what's happening there. And obviously with our brand, with Michael Waltrip, uh, our brand is you know, very much connected to motorsports. And I think we'll do more. Uh, you know, that's one of the goals that both Michael and I have is to take the brand even deeper into racing. And you'll start to see our name, I think, on the side of race cars and, you know, involved with motorsports uh, venues and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and that'll be great for, for the brand and exciting for me personally. Well, Brian gives us some very interesting perspective. And Michael Waltrip obviously gives Brian Sperber the support he needs to make this work. And Brian, a quintessential businessman, brings it home. Finally, the Good Sport 5, we always focus on the uh, chain entity uh, leading Web3 software solutions company and craft sports and entertainment announced a multi-year sponsorship that includes the advances in technology, which will also include the opportunity to provide some philanthropic help. Liverpool expands its partnership with NFT fantasy start sports startup Sorari, the average sale price for a Sorari NFT in August, about 86 bucks, down from a peak of 280 in March last year, according to market tracker Crypto Slam, but it ain't over. Nebraska and Playfly Sports announce a 15-year multimedia rights agreement. They'll work to maximize traditional MMR assets, such as full in venue signage and broadcast feature elements, in addition to leveraging Playfly's full capabilities set to enhance Nebraska's digital footprint and fan experience. Solai Sports and Entertainment partnering with Endeavor Lab Tech to offer company clients brand endorsement opportunities. Endeavor Lab is focused on athletes and Terrence Davis, the Solace co-founder and head of entertainment, focuses on core values and spending some extra time and dollars with athletes. And finally, the Washington Commanders announced Ortho Virginia as a new training center entitlement partner and the official orthopedic and sports medicine provider. The partnership provides effective and transformative medical care access and optimal training and recovery needs for the commander's roster, along with stakeholders' access to the entire state of Virginia. And that's the Good Sports Five. We'd like to thank Brian Sperber for giving us some perspective on racing and on retail and Michael Waltrip's company and Brian Sperber's company. We'd like to thank 
Callie Kazire for helping us put together the three games to watch from the NFL and college perspective, the weekly numbers game. Nick Nielsen for helping us put the show together, and you all for watching and listening. Join us next week when once again we go inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. I'm the sports professor Rick Harrow. Speak with you soon.